Welcome back to Series 1, Episode 9 of the Thrive Physiotherapy Podcast with me, Matt McDermott. And me, Liam Bill. This week, we have a brilliant guest, someone who we've loved learning from over the years and listened to lots of her work. Joe Gibson is on the podcast to talk everything shoulders, everything career in sport from early days to consultancy with top Premier League football teams in this current day. Without further ado, we'll get Joe onto the podcast. Gives us great pleasure to welcome Joe Gibson to the podcast. Joe is a physiotherapist who is a self-confessed shoulder geek. She's worked for multiple top class organisations around the world, including with um, many elite sports teams and athletes as well. Uh, Joe has an MSc in advanced practice and is definitely one of the best speakers we've had the privilege of seeing, um, especially recently in the Therapy Live talks. Uh, but for those who haven't had that privilege, Joe, we'll let you uh, introduce yourself and do a better, uh, better job than we can, if that's all right. I'm not sure. I thought that was very nice. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I'm Joe Gibson. I'm uh, a clinical specialist physiotherapist working at the Liverpool Upper Limb Unit in Liverpool in the UK. And I've been there in my current job since 1995. Um, but I also um, am a consultant in private practice. Um, I started my, I trained in Salford very, very long time ago. Um, and basically because I didn't work hard enough for my A-levels to do medicine. So I didn't take up my place at St. Andrews University, but it was the best thing that ever happened. Um, loved, wasn't a particularly good student, to be fair. Um, didn't really find my way. And then did an outpatient um, placement. I always wanted to get into sport because my background was athletics and running. Um, that's why physio, I kind of thought was good for me. Um, and then did lots of sports stuff, which we can talk about. I think Nottingham Rugby Club was my first major club that I worked with, um, which was enlightening as a junior physiotherapist who'd been qualified for not very long at all. Um, and then moved to Liverpool basically because my husband, much to my parents' horror, um, and just got very disenfranchised with everything really. And the NHS couldn't treat my patients how the way I wanted them to. Um, I did some sports stuff, but it was harder because I had kids. Um, and hated treating shoulders but I, I always remember there was a guy that I met when I was a junior physio in Nottingham and I followed him around on his ward round it was a treat at the end of the rotation and he, this guy was so passionate and he was talking about shoulder arthroplasty which is arguably the most boring thing um, but he was so passionate and I always it always kind of resonated so his colleague Simon Frostick came to Liverpool um, at the same time as I was doing my MACP weekends and I'd just done a weekend on muscle imbalance in the shoulder where I'd realized why 500 patients with shoulder pain hadn't got better with ultrasound and a bit of postural correction and that I was probably missing something. Um, and that started me on my shoulder journey. So I was, Simon Frostick came over to Liverpool as a professor. Um, I shamelessly politically wangled my way into the post, got interviewed and was successful. Um, and then he sent me all over the world to work with some amazing people, do some research, and uh, here I am now. And I'm very old, and I've been doing it a very long time. <laughs> so that's it in a nutshell. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, it's a it's an awesome sounds like an awesome journey. Like you say, with uh, experience of managing to go around the world, it's definitely something that uh, I think many physios out there would would want to get under their belt if they could. So it's a it's a great experience and we're yeah we're, we're thankful for having you on the podcast to talk about it and like you say we'll um we'll try and delve into some of the some of the stuff around sports particularly as well but just just to have the general experience would be great um I guess one of the one of the first questions is is around the consultancy work you do in sport it's um it's a different route in so that some might not be aware of um how have you sort of found yourself 
into that into that route and how is how is doing consultancy work which is not necessarily the the frontline work but working a bit on the side yeah i do you know what i i think it's a real privilege actually and i think i probably have the easiest end of the bargain really compared to physios working with teams all the time and working in professional sport because i have the honor of kind of going in there doing a bit of problem solving and um, advising people and coming up with a plan but I have to say I think all the experience I had in sport working with teams before and having done sport myself was invaluable because you had a real sense of the politics and the team and everybody who was invested in individual athletes but I guess the consultants you really took off because I um, kind of was slightly horrified at the research about um, footballers going back after stabilisation surgery. And I'd been asked to see a player at Liverpool um, and the return to play rates were like six months then. So this is way back in 2005. Um, and I just got really interested into why that was. And it was all to do with strength deficits, proprioceptive deficits, whatever. And so that really gave me an opportunity to do some research with one of my surgical colleagues, um, worked very closely with the local football clubs, which my kids finally thought I was cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, we showed that we could get people back a lot quicker. And it was never about getting them back quicker. It was just getting them back in a more robust way. And so they were back to their previous level of performance. And I guess that gave me a credibility, but it also allowed me to build up relationships with physios within the different clubs. And I had, I don't know, I'm going on too much, sorry, but there's no, probably a couple of, there's probably a couple of things that are just, I really learned from. I remember the first time I saw a premiership footballer, um, he actually came to my clinic, which I can't get insured to do now. I have to go to the gym. <laughs> yeah. um, and I remember this guy was doing really well. And then he rang me up one day and he said, um, I can't come and see you anymore. And I was like, he said, I'm giving up football. And I was going, why? He said, well, because you can't get my shoulder better. I said, but it's like 90% better. We're nearly there. What's the issue? And he said, the club physio says you can't know what you're talking about because you don't work in football. And I was absolutely gutted. And I remember talking to my friend who worked for a, one of the football clubs. And he just said, Joe, that guy was in such a difficult position because he treated him for six months um, hadn't got him better and now you're getting him better that doesn't put him in a good position I'm going yeah but I'm just trying to help and I thought from that point I thought I am never doing this without having a relationship with a physiotherapist who's responsible for that player so it was such a good lesson and in retrospect it was bad of me not to have made that link but I just kind of saw them as these people that were just far more important than me so now as a consultant it's so important when I go in there that I go in as as the kind of the problem solver and just a fresh set of eyes because you know if you work with a team you're seeing people all the time sometimes having somebody who can just look at it objective it's not better it's just different and a different perspective or lens to try and make sense of why people aren't perhaps um doing the way that they should so i i feel very privileged and I, it's a really nice role to do trying to fit it in with everything else can be interesting um but it's great because it doesn't kind of um it doesn't limit me to one sport. So, you know, I do a lot with football. I do less with rugby because the rugby physios are so much more used to seeing shoulder injuries. So when I do, it's usually a bit of a, a head turner to try and work out. Um, I do some stuff, yeah, with lots of sports, really. Anything that involves your shoulder, really. But as I say, football's been my main one, I think, because of the, the research, really, and the relationships I've built up with the clubs and stuff. And of course, the medical teams move. And so if they go somewhere else, then it kind of widens your kind of remit, I guess.
Yeah, absolutely. I think speaking as a as a football physio myself is that is that scope of practice as well. Like you're referring to that previous physio, it's it's the scope of the shoulder. Is like someone asked me what a shoulder is, and yeah, I might be pointing someone in a in a different direction for certain things. Not afraid to admit, but but it, it just shows it is it is the importance of that role, and like I say, the importance of communicating to people when you're not quite sure, and it might be a little bit out of your scope, and there can be a better better treatment, and then. You, you can turn that around to people like you and then like you say the communication works works both ways and it's a huge part of it we get asked quite a lot when we go out and lecture um you sort of get people come in to them in an msk clinic clinic who play sports and they say oh i feel bad because they they have another physio it's like no not at all if that physio is good and and interested in working for the benefit of that athlete they'll work with you and it's you're not stepping on toes it's just getting those lines Absolutely. of communication right so it's yeah, so yeah, and I think, do you know that. what? And I think that's such a great healthy message because I think it's, you know, funny enough, I was working with uh, a rugby player recently whose physio is absolutely superb and I could not have worked harder to get this guy better. And all I did was throw in a few little things that brought it together. But he said, you know, what I really respect about the guy I'm working with is that he's not afraid to ask other people and he's not afraid to keep learning, even though he's very experienced and knows what he's doing. So I think you're so right, wherever you are at in your career, you can learn from other people and it's being humble but being confident that it's not undermining you, it's adding to your kind of skill set. Absolutely. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Uh, it's yeah, great advice. I think whilst we're on a whilst we're on advice, I'll invite Matt in to um to delve into a, a few more questions and get some more advice and pearls of wisdom from you, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll do my utmost. <laughs> Perfect. So yeah, thanks uh, for sharing all of that uh, in incredible history today. Uh, I know it's the absolute worst thing for me to do. But I was sitting there, sort of comparing my own education and career pathway to yours, and yeah, just uh, definitely shouldn't have gone down that route. Is, is all I'll say. Um, <laughs> so yeah, as, as Ian said, we've got a few few key questions that we uh, give to all our guests, and sort of aiming to get a, a body of advice. Hopefully, will help our listeners who are just starting out on on their careers. Um, you obviously mentioned, I think, Nottingham Rugby Club as your sort mm -hmm. of first sporting role. Um, and this question is looking to sort of give our listeners one key recommendation or tip for getting that first role in sport. Oh, at this, I, I looked at some of these questions. They're they're really good because I kind of think, why did I do it? I think if you if you love sport and you want to work in sport, you've got to be determined and you've got to be brave to approach. And but you've also got to. This is not one thing. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> but you've also you've just got to know that it's not going to be pretty and rosy and glamorous from the word go. That you've got to do some. You just got to put the hours in and get the experience and network shamelessly because I think people, physios generally are, you know, if you're keen, enthusiastic and humble, people will really help you and support you. It's a really great profession. But I think if, if you know a sport and you've got contacts, you've just got to use them um, and you, it's not going to come to you. You know, I, I know personally, if people email me and ask my, I'll give them every bit of help I can, but I know there are people much better placed than me to help them. And I will put them in touch with those people because I know that they feel the same as me, that if somebody's keen and willing to put themselves out there, you want to support them. Um, but there aren't any shortcuts. And I think you just have to know what it is you want, know that you might get some knockbacks, but don't be afraid to keep asking and just do some volunteer stuff to get yourself in there, get yourself known and make them realize that actually you're an asset. 
yes, spot on. And, and again, really refreshing to hear getting some consistent themes with these, these answers as well. I say that proactivity, it won't come to you. Uh, the sort of networking connection side of things and also being aware that as you said it's not pretty it's not rosy it's not glamorous but if that's the area you want to get into you're aware of those uh, those things and pursuing it working and actively chasing it is, is probably one of the best things uh, that, that, that that people can do um, absolutely and I think like you learn so much from all those like I said I mean I, you know even the, the negative stuff or when it doesn't go so well and it's not quite so groovy but you learn from all of it so it's it's all invaluable experience for where you want to be in the future what uh, what, what led you specifically to rugby for the for the first role was that was that sort of an area of interest was it the opportunity that came up at the time it was an opportunity that came up um, and I had a grandfather that had played rugby at very high level. And so rugby was something we always watched on the telly. Um, and I had two brothers as well. Um, there wasn't a lot of option for girly things in our household. So no, I just, and I, you know, I kind of, I guess I was always more interested. I don't know. I, I certainly wasn't interested in the shoulder, but I think the opportunity came up. Um, I was always really keen to get into sport, but thought I'd go into athletics because, as I say, running was my background and that's what I kind of knew more about. But I just seized the opportunity came up. I, I was new in Nottingham, didn't know anybody. So I thought this is an absolutely no brainer. You know, I mean, they had some really good England internationals in Nottingham at the time. Um, so I kind of felt a bit scared. But then again, you just kind of go for it. And as long as you don't do anything stupid and you know when to ask and you know when you can't cope, then wow what a learning experience so I think yeah. It, yeah if I'm honest it was opportunity it was opportunity and sport um and it was a sport I liked even though I didn't necessarily know huge amounts about it and I could tell you a very embarrassing story about my lack of knowledge in rugby that exposed me in a certain situation <laughs> but maybe that's one for another day um but yeah it was just great and I mean it was so it's so simple and so basic I remember one of the um hookers coming in telling me what I was going to be doing to his neck <laughs> because that's what the previous physio did um so no it was a great it was a great place to start actually with my kind of sporting uh, interest I think yeah, you obviously mentioned there as well that at that stage you weren't necessarily uh, sort of uh, committed down the shoulder route. and do you think if, if you if you had gone into athletics we'd be speaking to uh, a hamstring guru today instead of a instead of a shoulder guru <laughs> Oh, I'm definitely not a guru, just old and done it for a long time. I, th I think I, I, I'm the sort of person that I'm never very good at um, thinking, yeah, this is how it is. And I, I've always got to be progressing. I've always got to be chasing something and I have to have something that excites me. And I guess, I, I'm, I don't know what it says about my personality, but I think I just hated the shoulder so much that when I found there was actually a potential solution or another way of looking at it, that really appealed because I wanted other people to stop hating it and, and see the transformation like I did. And I guess, I guess it was a bit new as well, you know, and I'm, I kind of, it was nice to do something that wasn't the knee, the ankle or the hamstrings, which everybody else was doing. And I think that's why it probably took me down that different path. Perfect. Um, looking at our, uh, our next key question here, sort of reflecting back uh, from when you were a student, if you could give yourself one piece of advice when you were a student, what would that advice have been? Uh, hone your communication skills. <laughs> Invest in communication and being taught how to be a good communicator. Because it honestly, it's, it's your superpower. 
you know that is the foundation of everything we do and if you get that right you just you know you kind of open your opportunities i think hugely i think being brutally honest as well even in uh, sort of uh, university degrees to date it's not highlighted enough it's said a lot it's on social media a lot it will be told to students on placement this this i don't think there is still enough emphasis on it in in degrees i don't think people put put, put enough weight on it and i say it, it's ridiculously invaluable in terms of it's, it's the one tool you'll use the most you use every single day with every single person you talk to not not just your patients but the, but the wider team but the, but the focus is is always elsewhere, and um, it, it's 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 tricky. But it, I, I does I do think there needs to be uh, it, it, it needs to be incorporated more in 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 degree level, not just sort of you graduate now you're working now you need to improve on these skills. Oh, Matt, honestly, music to my ears. It's one of the things that whenever I get an opportunity to talk about communication or the biopsychosocial model, it's just like we've got to invest in it at undergraduate level because there's so much evidence out there about the best ways to teach it. And ironically, my dad was a psychiatrist who specialised in communication skills and published a lot in medicine and changed how medical students were taught. But I think what, what is a common theme is that unfortunately it's always a bit of an add-on and unless you've got people that really engage students or you know or make them buy into it the problem is they're set on passing an exam and the way the exams are set the emphasis is not on your communication it's all exactly. about knowing your anatomy so you're so right there's got to be a complete reframing interestingly jeremy lewis has been involved in setting up a new physiotherapy degree out in qatar and it's kind of completely moved away from the kind of structural biomedical model and much more kind of problem solving communication behavioral change motivational interviewing and i think we have to be careful because i think you've still got to have a sound knowledge base but if you ask me the thing that's going to give you a successful future in sport or any part of healthcare, being a great communicator is as i say your superpower so i completely agree with you and i think we're missing a trick i think it's getting better but I don't think it's getting better as quickly as it needs to, given the challenges in current healthcare. It's, it's, it's always that sort of, in, in most physiotherapy research and evidence, it's always the uncontrollable variable. So delivering an intervention, whether it's exercise, prescription, coaching, education, whatever it may be, you know, you, you can script it. So you can script it. You can look at similar experience physiotherapists. You can even look at, the, the, the same pool of physiotherapists but that will, that will change person to person and you can keep everything else the same but that is that will always be the one uncontrollable variable and it's, it's difficult to prove but we know it has a huge huge impact on on the outcome of the patient the not just their compliance but you can have the exact same exercise regime delivered in two completely different ways two completely different outcomes and it's yeah, I, I, I don't really know a, 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 a way around that side of things other than, than sort of an awareness of it and I guess getting more, more, more improved communication skills as a foundation and a baseline so when subsequent research comes out sort of the discrepancy, the discrepancy in the communication skills isn't, isn't too much of an issue. Yeah, I, and I think you're absolutely spot on. And I think that's absolutely the limitation of things like randomized controlled trials, because you can't control that. And if you do control it, actually, you're taking away arguably one of the biggest influences on outcome, behavioral change and adherence, as you say, and challenging patients, beliefs, concerns and expectations. If you don't do that as part of an intervention, you immediately fail 20% of that cohort in, in your atraumatic shoulder pain. 
So no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's the challenge. I think qualitative research and the patient perspective is much more accepted now and certainly mixed methods research. And we're starting to see that evolving. But again, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm doing some work with a guy at the moment who wrote a paper and talking about how pain was embodied and enacted and he's far cleverer than I am. Um, but it was just that it really, for me, just highlighted how individual somebody's pain or injury experiences. And if you communication is is the foundation for unpicking that and then giving a framework to people to take them on that rehab journey. And as you've just beautifully said, you can't you can't standardize that, you know, and, and people always want the way you explain it or the metaphor you use. And of course, there's things that will work for several people but fundamentally none of it will work unless you've invested in that individual first yeah it's, it's, it's for, for, for me as well it's, it's, it's very refreshing to have this uh, have this discussion and hopefully we'll sort of start to sort of raise a few eyebrows and questions uh, from our listeners as as well um awesome. i'm really interested in the, the next question uh, just in the sense you, you mentioned um sort of potentially pursuing a, a route for medicine in St Andrews um, and then obviously going down the, the physiotherapy side of things um, in the sense that I was, I was similar and now I'm looking at the reverse so admittedly looking at a med medicine route from from physio um, leads on to the next question sort of you know, reflecting back on your career would, would you have done anything differently at any point <laughs> I love that question um, I'm going to give a really cheesy answer say no because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I'd made different decisions I kind of wish I'd worked a little bit harder at university do I regret not doing medicine no because I think I'm actually far better suited and I've been able to make more of a difference taking the route I've taken I'm not that I'm not up for a challenge but I think Bearing in mind, Matt, I'm a lot older than you. I think at the time, if I'd gone into medicine, it would have been hugely frustrating because that was miles behind. And it's only just kind of catching females in orthopedics or sports medicine. You know, it's happening, but not only in the last five or 10 years, arguably. Um, so I think I've probably, not that, when I say make a difference, I was lucky and I was one of the first specialists. So I kind of had an opportunity and a very informed surgeon um, and I took that opportunity very seriously. So I, I don't have any regrets. And I think what I just say to my, I would say to my student self, just enjoy the ride and don't angst about stuff and don't stop questioning. Because I guess the only thing is when I look at my journey, which is common to a lot of people who've been in the job for a long time, is you kind of really buy into the minutiae of manual therapy or you really buy in or you're looking for that magic panacea and I spent a lot of my early shoulder job looking for magic solutions for patients but then I don't regret that because I might have come full circle but what I learned through that process was huge and I think as long as you are open humble and never stop reflecting you can't go wrong and I, that's probably what I'd say is stop thinking you need to know it all because actually you need to get the basics right and never stop challenging and then you're just going to enjoy it. So I probably angsted too much about not being brilliant at doing whatever the latest manual therapy technique was, or I needed to do 10 more courses to be as, you know, amazing. Um, so actually, yeah, I'm going to change that answer, Matt. I'm going to say, stop stressing, get the basics right, and just never stop questioning and never stop learning, because that's what makes it so much fun. Yeah, good, great, great answer. And, and an honest answer as well. Um, I think we, 
we we do get mixed answers for this and uh, without getting into too much detail some are are honest we can tell they're honest and some potentially are are not so honest. it's, it's yeah good and, and professional here a good good truthful honest answer um which leads on nicely to our our final question um we used to frame this as uh, if you could highlight one key piece of research or journal paper that's really resonated with you. Um, and we're not saying it's the only paper that exists or the only paper to direct people's attentions to, certainly, but just really giving the opportunity to, to highlight a paper that, that, that you found useful. It can be contemporary, it can be something that's a little bit more dated, but just, just some, something to highlight, give a bit more of media attention to, and, and hopefully um, send our listeners down a, a good evidence-based path. So I, so yeah, that's, it's a question of whether you want an article that's changed me or you want a good evidence-based article because they're not necessarily the same thing. <laughs> um, can I mention two? Can I be really greedy? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make an exception this time. I'll, I'll give you two. I'll give you two. <laughs> so the first one I'd have to mention was a paper by McMullen and Tim Eulin way back in 2000, which was basically about a kinetic chain approach to rehabilitation. And really, it was a kind of theoretical framework rather than, but it drew from the evidence base. So I guess in modern parlance, it'd be called a narrative review. Um, but it was, it kind of really resonated with my experience when things weren't going so well that actually adding in the rest of the body to shoulder exercises or considering that in people's injury prevention not that you have to do it all the time but it was kind of something that suddenly made shoulder rehab easier and he just presented a really lovely neurological framework to that in terms of you know how we move some of the science but in a really sensible way and that actually led to me doing a uh, fellowship out in Kentucky uh, with Tim Yule and Dr Kibler um, and then the other one would be there was a paper by Laura Mosley. well anything by Laura Mosley has got to be worth a read um, but it was called I think pain the brain and opportunity knocks um, and again it was more a kind of summation of when brain imaging was coming in but it really acknowledged our power as clinicians to mess with sensory input and how that might then influence movement and in the brain. And that to me, one, it, again, it resonated with me in that, you know, we have a lot of evidence telling us nothing we do works and actually let's just, you know, give exercises and lovely and listen to our patients. But actually my experiences, particularly in people who maybe things aren't going so well, who've had symptoms a long time, there's lots we can do, whether it's tactile cues, visual cues, bit of resistance whatever to actually change how somebody moves or change their pain experience and that was a really lovely kind of opportunity knocks physios you need to take this seriously and it just really flagged up those areas and it's something that definitely has formed the basis of how I've kind of developed my subsequent approach to treatment if you like so it kind of lit up things I was always interested in but you know when somebody like Lorimer says it you've got permission <laughs> Yeah, two, two cracking bits of research there. And as you say, um, yeah, Lauren Mosley, the sort of name speaks for itself. Um, so we'll be uh, directing our listeners to, to both of those uh, off, the, off the back of this podcast as well, so they can uh, read and, and make their own interpretations uh, from them. But yeah, th thank you very much. And some, some cracking answers coming from those key questions. Really, really pleased with those. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll pass back over to, to Liam now to, to delve a, a little bit more deeper into some of the topics that we've, we've already mentioned. Super.
yeah, I think flowing straight on from uh, the evidence questions there, I'm going to be a, be a little bit mean and just try and get you to, to delve into those into a little bit more detail. And I appreciate that uh, they can go in. It could be a whole podcast around this sort of uh, this kind of thing. But if you could, a little brief description. So you mentioned how they both influenced your work, but especially around the kinetic chain and sort of the input into the motor cortex. And we we saw, so we talk at one of the ACPSM conferences a little while ago and around a similar thing. And just, yeah, if, uh, if it's possible to summarise that in a, in a shorter <laughs> term, if you could for our listeners, that would be, uh, be amazing. Yes. Yeah, over those bits. Sure. So um, in terms of the kinetic chain, really, I've just um, recently had a systematic review published that was authored by Ellie Richardson, which is a really hard read. And so definitely the summary is the important thing is that essentially if you initiate your shoulder exercises with a step, a step up or a lunge, you just facilitate better local recruitment at the shoulder and potentially unload it. So if you've got somebody with really acute shoulder pain, um, that you're struggling to break the cycle, it's one potential tool you can use to further unload the shoulder so you can find a way in with your rehabilitation. There is some evidence in the neurological literature that again, if you initiate your shoulder exercises with the lower quadrant, and the key with this, this kinetic chain approach is it's dynamic, it's not being on all fours and lifting one leg, it's initiating with movement, is that taps into some of your neurological mechanisms in terms of your anticipatory postural adjustments but also just normal movement if i reach into a cupboard there's a normal pattern of sequential activation through my lower quadrant and my trunk that allows me to selectively move my arm and you imagine in sport and you look at all that intersegmental rotation there's been huge amounts that have come from the sporting literature that show us that up to 80 percent of the power of some throws comes from the legs and the trunk so if we only rehab 20 percent we're missing a, a, an opportunity. So there's emer so firstly, for me, it's about facilitating rehab and that's using that integration of the kinetic chain. Secondly, it's the potential role in performance. Now that is absolutely in athletes in terms of if they're low, there's more correlation with lower quadrant strength and power measures and upper limb performance than any local measures, which makes sense with that kind of 80-20 model. Um, there's also some emerging evidence of the link of lower quadrant injuries and the potential influence on the shoulder over time and association rather than a proven cause. Um, but also, even if we look at our non-sporting populations, if you look at um, the elderly population who come in with a massive cuff tear or shoulder fracture, we know that all-cause mortality is very closely related with lower quadrant strength and hand grip. So to me, it's just about enhancing what well, well, everyone's got excited on twitter about capacity recently but to me it's just yeah. about making in, enhancing an athlete's performance by enhancing the rest of the kinetic chain but also making sure they've got effective force transfer so a common thing i'll see is they don't engage their thorax well and often that's just because that's where they compensate so a very easy way to override that is just to do more of a patterning movement where you involve the whole body rather than just the shoulder so in terms of the kinetic chain, it's looking at its role in performance and injury. It's looking at enhancing performance, its potential role in injury if somebody's not getting better with your shoulder stuff. And that's usually the people that when they go back to load, it breaks down and they've got a previous injury history. And then fundamentally, it's a really easy way of facilitating and making shoulder rehab easier for your patients because it's more proprioceptive. It taps into all those neurological mechanisms and gets better local recruitment. So that's a 45 minute lecture in about 33 seconds. Um, and then in terms of the motor cortex stuff, so the reason I got interested in this was for several reasons. One, 
if you look, so I'm always, I'm, a, I'm not very good, as you probably imagined, at giving up on things and not understanding when I can't get somebody better. And if you look at the shoulder research, it's pretty clear that even though we get a reasonable amount of people better in the short term, if you follow them up one to three years down the line, about 40 to 50% will either have recurrence or ongoing symptoms. And you guys know if you're in sport, the biggest predictor of a shoulder injury is you've had one before. Yes. So I was always interested in what is it that we're not doing well enough? And is it all about structure? And basically where fMRI and some of these cool things that measure the brain, what they've shown us is that we do get changes in cortical organization and representation. And you look at um, Ebony Rio's work, looking at tendinopathy and this mismatch between inhibition and excitation, all very fancy words, but fundamentally, this kinetic chain, very movement-based approach, but also enhancing sensory input, we know from things like the complex regional pain literature, have the potential to change that cortical representation and influence those inhibition excitation levels. So really, I kind of talk about brain-rich rehab, and then I know some of you will go, well, but it's not all about the brain. I know, but it's just, let's just make our rehab as sensory-rich as possible, because if you look at the ACL, what have we learned? That actually the thing that catches people out is they don't get that force production or that rate of force production. It's exactly the same in the shoulder. We just nick all the research from the lower quadrant and reinvent it in the upper limb. And we're finding exactly the same thing, is it's not about strength and range of movement. It's that connection with the brain, that production of force and all those different sub divisions, if you like, of proprioception. So I just take a, what I like to think is a very sensory rich approach to rehab that reflects normal function. Yeah. And I think like applying that sport, like, like you alluded to there, but both of those strands is, is so important as well. Cause it's, it is, like I say, it's not just that shoulder function. It's the function as a movement, whether you're pitching in baseball and we know, like you say, the, the lower limb input in that, what that can do and then whether that's diving as a goalkeeper but all those things if you're doing the rehab there and you're not focusing on those things and those sensory inputs that they'll get at the time you're probably missing out on half the trick so like like you say it's a a real snapshot and a and taking a nutshell there but so important it's um yeah really really good to hear and encourage anyone to go and look more into that if they if they aren't aware of it already without a doubt Absolutely. And I think the thing is, it's, it's, you know, this is where often, say, for example, in rugby, I'll get asked to go and see somebody. It sounds like they've done every exercise known to man. And all you end up doing is literally an exercise that involves the kinetic chain and then something that makes it more sensual, gets the brain a bit more interested. And it's the deal breaker. It's the thing that makes it all come together. And I think it's just that's what's fun, you know, but it's, you can't say, oh, I'm going to play. You've got to have a framework of these are the things I'm going to try. But yeah. they're based on that science. Absolutely. Brilliant. And the other, the other side of that is that we'll, we'll touch on and touched on a little bit earlier as well, but a little bit more detail from you if we, if we can is around the, uh, the good communication. So I guess it's, it's a tricky question because obviously communication has got to be based on every individual that you're dealing with and every situation, but are there any, any tips or any things that you find appear more frequently perhaps in, in your, in your rehab with shoulders that you, you tend to find works well in communication? So the, I guess the, the real message I would want to give at this point is just don't assume anything. You have to find out what athletes have been told. And importantly, it's not enough to just know what they've been told. You want to know what that means to them. So the first thing I do before I do anything else, I ask them to tell me the story of why they're where they're at now. I ask them what they've been told by the healthcare professionals and what they understand about that. Because 
if you assume or you dive in and it can be very tempting you can imagine when certainly when I first started one I was a bit giddy that I was in these kind of premiership football clubs and it was all very exciting but secondly it's you know not that I'm somebody who would ever think I'm important but you know it you the basics are so important and if you say something that's incongruous with a trusted person within the club or you know you might not agree with it but as long as what you then say reframes it in a way that one validates why they haven't got better without dissing the other person but two gives them a very positive framework to go forwards with I don't think you can go wrong so you know I think for me communicate it's that active listening and really getting to the nub. And, and I think where your communication skills are so helpful is, you know, all the evidence shows is that we're very good at asking that opening question, but then we're not necessarily good enough at shutting up and listening and giving the patient space. So that first time you want to interrupt, don't. Just try and keep quiet for a little bit longer. It will feel like 10 minutes. It will be milliseconds. And often that's the thing. And the other thing that's really interesting, and this is where the whole manual therapy, hands-on assessment, all that kind of stuff, you know, your assessment, lying somebody down, actually is another opportunity for patients to disclose. And if there's stuff that they think is important for you to know. Um, so don't underestimate silence in those situations. Don't feel, feel you've got to fill all the spaces. And then I guess a nice thing at the end, which is a bit of a safety net, when you've done your assessment, you've come up with a plan. It's just reflecting it and say to the patient, what are you going to tell your family, the physio, whatever, about what I've told you today? Because it's amazing what patients hear sometimes. It is nothing like what you know you said. And yet, if you don't ask them, and the other question is, is, is there something else you think is important for me to know so I can really help with your rehab? Not anything, anything they won't tell you, but if you say something, they're far more likely to disclose. And it's really just making sure that you understand everything that's potentially going to impact that recovery. So active listening giving them space when you're doing some of your physical stuff in case there's more they want to say never assume that just because they've been told something that that's what they believe or that's what they understand yes that's really great advice um i think especially again applying it to to sports people or athletes if you like that applying those things to them you can get caught in the trap of thinking you know them if you're working with them day to day on day to day basis and rushing those sort of things and not giving them a chance and you know a bit more about them so you might have the conversations that you usually have and you're actually missing a trick like you say you're not necessarily giving them the silence or time to feedback on something around an injury that's really important or you think you're hearing what they're saying you think you know them you think you might know that their pain their pain tolerance might be poor or something like that but actually take it as it is step back listen to what they've got to say and take each assessment on their own i think it's it's really important and including all those tips that you've just given there oh i love i love that i absolutely love that yeah because i think in you know in my world in the nhs if somebody's a post-op patient they're a post-op patient and suddenly all that other stuff doesn't matter no they still need to be treated like it's the first time you've ever met them so you understand that backstory and in sport that's certainly one of the things i see is that it's kind of what are the protocols and it's like nobody's talked about the injury, the fact that this is going to challenge them keeping their place because there's some young buck coming through that's likely to nick it while they're off injury.
injured and all those wider issues and you know you guys in sport that the biggest again some of the biggest predictors of injury are an increase in those stresses or those daily hassles more than anything physical we can measure and why so many clubs are using well-being questionnaires now before they train so i think for me you're you're absolutely right it's just not assuming and being sensitive to the cues because people particularly if you're working with them all the time generally they'll give you hints that there's something they want to talk about but equally you know in the sporting environment sometimes it can be a bit kind of we'll get on with it or whatever so being sensitive to that i think you're absolutely spot on liam yeah we give you a little scenario that is one that we come across on a day-to-day basis that people who might not work in sport don't necessarily appreciate the the pressures that happen so I'll, I'll read the scenario out and then if you can give us a, any any tips or bits around that that you might see um we we'll really appreciate it but essentially say for example if a goalkeeper came to you prior to training um you know sort of 10 minutes to assess them um assess their appropriateness to training they give you a sort of description of non-specific shoulder pain um really terrible history that is is quite hard to get out of them they're not giving you much um they say i've had it sort of for a week following a gym session it's gradually getting worse what are your key key sort of things you would look at subjectively and then we'll move on to objectively what would your sort of top tips be in that yes yeah. yeah so in, i mean subjectives all it's 80 percent of your decision making and i mean from my point of view the way i look at the shoulder in terms of what's going to influence what i do is you know is it torn is it stiff is it irritable uh, even if it is irritable, can I change it? And therefore, unless I'm considering a nerve injury, but obviously that's pretty unlikely with somebody who's just been in the gym and got a bit sore. Mm. So is it torn? I need to know, was there something that happened in the gym? You know, were, were you doing a bench and did it give way? Were you trying to lift too heavy and it gave way or you had to drop the weight or whatever? And then did you have immediate pain? Um, because that might make me want to look a little bit more into the cuff or whatever more specifically. But fundamentally, the likelihood is he's just done too much in the gym. He hasn't built up his load carefully and now his tendon's having a bit of a grumble. So what I need to ascertain is whether I've got a truly reactive tendon, um, as in, have you got sleep disturbance? You know, can you lie on that side, etc.? Is it just pain on movement or are you getting some background rest pain, etc.? Um making sure it's not stiff but i'm not expecting a goalkeeper to be stiff so that's that's dead easy um and as i say the irritability is just more about the sleep disturbance and how much it's limiting day to day so that's dead easy that's two or three questions that are immediately going to confirm what i already think is he's just overloaded his tendon a bit but then in terms of can he train then i need to ascertain can i change it or not so if he's taken some non-steroidals that might be interesting but most of them don't They've probably iced it or done whatever um, or put all such magic potions that I just don't know. Um, But then very simply in terms of my objective, I'm just going to make sure he's not stiff. I'm going to get him to show me the movement that hurts. I'm going to just do some resisted testing just to see if it's sore. So again, I've got something to retest. And then really my go-to is can I change the pain by doing some very simple symptom modification and secondly, looking at the cuff in isolation. Now, the reason that I do that is because if I then do some very simple, and I don't know what to call them, I'm going to call them activation exercises, even though it's probably a swear word for some people. But <laughs> um, So I do some very simple activation stuff that I know gives me good value to get cuff and scapular engaged. I'm going to do a couple of sets and then reassess his pain. If it's easier, great, you can go and train. If it's not, you can't. And that's where actually something like GERD's very useful. You can do the same thing. Um, 
look at their good do a switch on is it better yes no if it's not better you're not training you're going to have to modify what you're doing if it is better you can but you know can we just control what you're doing and limit the load temporarily um because sometimes it's just a question they've done a little bit too much everything's got a bit out of sync just needs a bit of reminder they'll do well but if it's truly reactive then it's going to need a little bit of time yeah yeah exactly and I think like you're saying now, you've got you've got sort of 10 minutes to rush through that and some people might be thinking, Jesus, I've got 10 minutes to decide whether they can train. But like you say, ultimately, if certain things are making it better, you get them moving a bit and it's okay, you're suspecting it's a bit of soreness. Sometimes while you're happy in, in the sporting environment, you need to go and get on with that. Things will things will get better. It might be a bit sore, it's okay. But what we've checked, what we've discussed, that's actually fine. You've, you've ticked those boxes, you spoke about in the subjective. If it's the other way, a couple of things get picked up in the subjective that you're not happy with, then you're probably saying no can't risk that need to look a little bit further or you get through your subjective but then the objective is saying look can't do can't do these basic exercises how is it expected to go out and functionally perform then your decision's made so yeah i think that's that's almost a perfect little little set through set to go through there and it's it's a good description of that limited time you get but how much you can do in that and like you say the subjective is 80 percent and we've we've had a lot of that on the on the podcast so far that 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 is really important and some people might think they need to do 10 minutes of every possible shoulder test every possible special test and you can go into their worthlessness or worthfulness all, all day long that's another that's another podcast episode but um yeah, yeah that's the, definitely the subject it gives you so much more so so, yeah, and yeah. I think I think the thing with the shoulder is, it, you know, generally in sport, if you haven't had a history of trauma, it's generally overload, and then it's just a question of actually, is it just tendons a bit grumbly because it's being overloaded, and actually, if you unload it by getting everything else doing its job better, they're actually fine, or is it truly reactive and that it just needs a little bit more time? But you're still going to do the same things; it's just going to limit what they can do training-wise because the one who's just a bit overloaded, then you change that load, they're fine and they can get on with it no problem. So you're absolutely right. And I think that's a great message. It doesn't have to be complicated. You know, it's usually very simple and just doing the basics really well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect note to, uh, to finish up on there. I think that's, that's a definite take home message. Um, just before we, before we let you go, where can uh, our listeners find, find a bit more of your stuff, any, any social media that we can point them towards? Yeah, so, well, I've got the worst Twitter handle ever because I am such a technology nightmare. I didn't realise what I was doing when I chose Shoulder Geek 1 and I got even the fact that there wasn't another Shoulder Geek and I put one. I've had lots of Mickey taken out of me from various people. So, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. I try and be the voice of reason with all the madness that goes on on there. Um, You can also go on the Public Clinical Edge uh, Facebook page where I've done loads of free Facebook Lives about lots of different shoulder subjects. Um, and they're all free and they're accessible to anybody really Um, so you can just go on the clinical age public page Um, so they're in terms of free resources and stuff they're probably the two best ones excellent yeah definitely encourage people to go and go and check those out and like we say if you get a chance to see any of your any of your talks or anything like that they're uh, they're well worth well worth going along to it's um it's been really useful and hopefully so is this podcast for the listeners uh, matt and i always say that we we find uh if if no one else finds it useful we we definitely do we really appreciate the time so uh, yeah there's if there's anything else from you there matt but otherwise just to say thank you thank you very much for coming on yeah no, no, nothing for me i think just summarizing keep it simple and communication is key and a huge huge thanks to joe there
Oh no, you've summed that up beautifully, Matt. I, thank you so much. I'm always happy to come and talk about all things shoulder and sport. And I just think you're doing a great job with this. It's a fantastic idea. And just thanks for including me. It's a real privilege. Thank you very much indeed for listening to another great podcast. Hopefully you found it useful. Um, really love the feedback we received so far. And if you'd like to give us any comments or feedback on, uh, on this podcast, engage with us on all the usual socials at Thrive PES. Uh, if you can subscribe to us on wherever you're listening to the podcast from, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you for the next episode, which will be episode number 10.